Are you listening? Stai ascoltando? The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello, world. Welcome to the Global Voices Podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. In this edition, you'll hear more from the Global Voices Summit, which took place in Nairobi, in Kenya. As well as being a gathering for the public, Global Voices authors and editors to meet and discuss their ideas, a selection of academics from around the world was also invited to share their knowledge and learn from the community. Ivan Sigal is the Executive Director of Global Voices. He described why it was important that the academic group came to join in at the event. We are holding in parallel a meeting of academics that focus on the relationship between internet ICT technologies and social and political movements. And uh, we invited them here because Global Voices began as an organization with an empirical focus, a research focus in addition to an activist focus. And we're always interested in finding out the relationship between people who, whose job it is to know and those who do. And uh, in this case, we brought together a community of academics from different disciplines and different regional specialties to see if we could establish some baseline ideas or commonalities about the relationship or the, the dynamic between online communities and activism and journalism and their disruptive force and the relationship to publics around the world. Surely there are a lot of academics starting to look at this. I mean, digital media for academics seems a bit of a hotspot. Everyone's quite excited about it. How do you choose who might be best, and also how would that do well for Global Voices? Well, we started from the perspective that a conversation about this subject is so often in the mass media, and at a, at a fairly superficial level, is, is very often couched in fairly deterministic language. So we hear that there's a Twitter revolution somewhere or a Facebook revolution somewhere else. And we, are, we designate the medium, um, whether it's Twitter or whether it's social media more broadly, as the subject and the humans that are involved in the activity as the objects. And I think that that's backwards. And I think that it's not a very helpful lens for analysis. And it's quite reductive in the way that this, this, this quite complex and often contentious space actually exists. And there's a seems to be, especially in the mass media, a rush to judgment, to say the media is good, the medium is bad, it's had this effect, it's had that effect. Well, actually, it's a multi-causal, any revolutionary change or any protest movement or any social force is a, often a multi-causal and complex phenomenon. And the way that we communicate is often both foundational, but also it forms the substance of what, what those events are. And, and making and drawing easy conclusions about their normative nature is, is highly problematic. And will the presence of academics at this meeting also feed out then to Global Voices writers who may not be able to come to events like this? Is there an impact further down for the organization? For the short term, my hope is that we'll introduce our community to people who are interested in studying citizen and social media more broadly and that they'll learn from us and we'll learn from them. I'm also hopeful that 
after this, that community will continue to work together, potentially with us, or more broadly upon an agreed set of ideas, and that they might help us to understand our role in the world, um, or what roles we might play, and we might help them to understand how online communities form and persist. Are there always plans then for, say, the next summit to have a more diverse group, or is it mostly an academic group that you would invite to an event like this? I do not know that yet. We might come up with another group or a different, a different demographic to invite next time. Um, we might find that this group becomes integrated into our world. We've also talked a lot about inviting coders and designers and hackers to, to hack on GV or to, to become a, sort of a wing of what we do, but with a slightly different perspective. And so maybe that would maybe that next time we come together, we'll have one or two new communities that are integrated into what we do. Or maybe not. It's, it's early days. Do you know about the Technology for Transparency Network? The Technology for Transparency Network is a participatory research and mapping project. The aim is to gain a better understanding of the current state of online technology projects that increase transparency, government accountability and civic engagement in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, China and Central and Eastern Europe. The project is co-founded by Open Society Institute's Information Programme and Omedia Network's Media, Markets and Transparency Initiative. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. So what did the academics make of their time at the summit? There were many sessions discussing the processes and methods of raising underrepresented voices and making the most of citizen media tools. These are everyday matters and topics for the Global Voices community. So I asked a selection of academics about their thoughts and experiences at the event to find out what they learned and the knowledge that they may return to their work with. I'm Nathan Matias. I'm a research assistant at the MIT Media Lab Center for Civic Media. I'm part of the academic session where we're talking about issues related to citizen media and how we can think about that as academics. What do you think you will take away? Firstly, just an enormous respect for the people who we often write about and think about and talk to other academics about. But you know, there are people who are risking their lives to report on important stories around the world. And as an academic, it's incredibly important to remember that and amazing to meet some of those people. I'm doing a lot of research on technologies that people can use to make their voices heard, whether it's uh, technologies for civic video, maybe people are reporting from the ground in a protest, and also trying to build platforms that we can use to highlight those voices. So it's been really wonderful to learn more about the technologies people are using to make media and the challenges they have in sharing that media more broadly. I'm Tessa Horton. I'm Assistant Professor in Media and Communication at the University of Nottingham Malaysia campus. I look particularly at online activism and online social movements. Since I've been in Malaysia, I've been looking or starting to look at, once I've got a grip on the Malaysian political scene, the Bursi movement and other associated movements. And so what are you gaining by being here at the Global Voices Summit? 
Wow, where to start? Uh, just so many amazing people to talk to and to connect with and to hear about all the different projects that people are working on, working together on. The thing I think that has surprised me the most is the kind of activity and the enthusiasm of the translation groups. I'm monolingual, which I'm probably one of the few people here who is. So it's just amazing to see like these incentives to get different stories from around the world into different languages and to increase the accessibility of them in that sense as well as just coordinating them and pulling them together on global And what do you think you will take away with you at the end of this? Uh, Lots of new friends, (laughs) lots of new connections. I'm hopefully going to start working with Global Voices Southeast Asia uh, and writing for them and just kind of a renewed appreciation and kind of um, admiration for Global Voices as a a network and as a movement. Uh, My name is David Ferris. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and I serve on the strategy board of the Meta Activism Project. What I'm really seeing here is the kind of the tremendous depth resilience and diversity of this community and really I think reinforces the centrality that this community has served over the past six or seven years in bringing together activist communities worldwide and really seeing the the kind of cross-regional cross-national linkages in this network that have uh, I think been so so important when we look at different protests and and activist movements uh, across these many countries and it's just been uh, tremendously helpful to kind of also to be here early and see inside the box of the organization and see how it operates with such great transparency. And so it's been just a fantastic privilege to, to be here at my first summit and, and, uh, and meet all these wonderful activists and reporters and bloggers. And it's just been awesome. The experience that I'd, I'd love to take back to my work is to really look at the kind of network building and identity building around the idea of being a citizen media activist and the way that this organization has served as a kind of a a hub and a kind of um, community-building device. Uh, So, you know, beyond its utility as a a way of aggregating news and aggregating reporting and and bringing to the world ideas and and happenings in places that I think are really neglected and don't get a lot of press attention, I'm really fascinated by the kind of, like, long-term friendships and and collaborative opportunities um, that these activists have have seized upon using this platform and using these meetings to reinforce each other, to give each other strength. And I'd love to kind of look into that a bit more and see how that's developed and do a bit of history about it. Because I think even though I've been aware of Global Voices since since the beginning, I I think even I didn't understand the importance of this community and the way that, that these activists have been so central to the whole idea of digital activism around the world. Uh, Molly Sauter, I'm a graduate student at MIT. I'm here for the academic co-located workshop on digital media and disruptive publics. I'm meeting a lot of fantastic people. Uh, I'm also here collecting case studies on various digital activism campaigns that we can use for a project that Ethan Zuckerman and I are working on at MIT. This has been a super help. We've met some awesome people and we're getting some really great data. And so what will you tell people when you get back about your experience? When they say there's traffic in Nairobi, they really mean there's traffic in Nairobi. Global Voices sprang from academia, and one of those fine minds at the genesis of the organization is Rebecca McKinnon. 
Rebecca is the co-founder of Global Voices, as well as being an author and a senior fellow at the New America Foundation, a think tank where she works on internet policy issues. I caught up with Rebecca to ask about the future of the internet and what it means for freedom and communication. Well, there are a number of threats. I mean, I think a lot of people tend to assume that the way the internet is today is sort of just like the way the air or water is today. It's just kind of a constant. But what you can and cannot do online depends on the decisions being made by engineers, by software programmers at companies, by corporate managers, by regulators, by all kinds of different people who are shaping what you can do online both technically, you know, how your identity is shaped online and what governments can access and what they cannot access about you and how and who has access to your information and what is shared. So I guess there's a couple of threats. One has to do with the spread of censorship. Ten years ago, only really a couple of countries filtered the Internet in any meaningful way. Now it's, you know, several dozen countries, and some of them democracies, are censoring the Internet increasingly. And you also have the growing sophistication of surveillance and people being monitored. And then, you know, because our lives are so increasingly dependent on these technologies, and of course in order to use these technologies most conveniently, you know, they collect a lot of data about us, and then there's a question of how it's stored and who has access to it. So there's this issue of companies not being honest about how they're using your data, and then also governments not being honest about how they're collecting your data, and then you combine the two, and that's a a tremendous threat. So we need to really push governments and companies to be open and transparent about what they're doing, and we need to require accountability. Because, you know, there are some legitimate law enforcement reasons why sometimes, you know, investigating murders or pedophiles or kidnappers or something, you need companies to help out the, you know, police. But it gets abused very easily. And, you know, we talk about the need to be able to speak freely on the Internet, to be able to connect freely to websites. And that's obviously extremely important, but we also need freedom from fear. If we're so afraid that what we get posted online is going to land us in jail or, you know, cause us to be killed, there's a lot of threats to anonymity because a lot of law enforcement authorities all over the world think that anonymity enables crime and so that we should change the architecture of the Internet to make everything traceable. There's a lot of push for that. But that's going to make it much harder for people who are vulnerable to speak out. And so another point about the threats is, you know, as they say, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And a lot of the threats to free speech, to open discourse online come from good intentions. They come from people who are calling on their elected officials to protect children on the Internet. They're coming from people who are calling on their elected officials to do more to fight crime on the Internet, you know, to protect us on the Internet. You know, these are all things people want. But how do you make sure that the laws that are passed and the mechanisms that are put in place technically don't have all this collateral damage on our freedoms, you know? And then also just the... You know, there's a huge fight going on with a lot of industries who feel their intellectual property is being ripped off online, and they're demanding laws um, that will criminalize, you know, anybody who downloads anything. 
um, but can also be abused for political reasons. And, um, and a lot of pressure on governments to basically hold Internet companies responsible, legally responsible, for what their users do. And the more that happens, then basically Internet companies turn into sort of a private police force, and there's no public accountability there. And the people running Internet companies, you know, staffing them, are not trained in legal issues. So if whenever there's something comes up that they think might get them in trouble, they might delete it if, if they're being held responsible. So we have to be very careful about, you know, the types of laws that are getting passed and also watch companies very closely for the kinds of mechanisms they're putting in place for our identity. Are they allowing us to have pseudonyms? You know, how are they tracking and storing our data? Can we find out what they have about us? Can we get it erased? Uh, all these questions, you know, we need to really push. You know, when when our content is getting taken down for some reason, you know, why is that? And so we need the companies to be accountable as well. And so I understand also that you're working on reports that provide data that people can look at to understand the state of the internet for netizens. Yeah, so what the netizen report is, is that's not really kind of data the Netizen Report is just a, a post that we're posting every week on Global Voices Advocacy, where there's just a team of us that's collecting information about you know who's been arrested where, what this company has done, what that company has done, what this government has done, what that government has done, what is the latest dispute over, you know, there are a number of internet governance bodies internationally that shape the internet in different ways, manage it, so what's going on with that. So it's basically... It's not data in sort of the big data sense, but it's, it's more just trying to report on these things because I think the traditional media doesn't report so comprehensively on a lot of these issues. So, so really just to have a regular posting on Global Voices Advocacy where we give an overview of what happened this week in kind of the struggle for freedom and control of the Internet in various places around the world. And so there are some people in the community who are going to start doing regional netizen reports Reports, reporting on what's happening in the region. One thing I've been advocating that I'm not working on directly other than just advocating for it is that I think companies and governments need to be much more transparent about what data is being shared by companies with governments, what, what governments are demanding of companies, how that data sharing works, and also the scope of demands being made by governments on companies to take down information or to block information or to hand over information. And so Google has something called the Transparency Report where they actually have data you know, country by country where they operate on how many requests they received from that particular government for user information and how many requests they received to take down content of different kinds. And I've been advocating that all companies should have a similar report. And also governments should have transparency reports about what they're requesting of companies. Because if we don't have transparency and accountability about how information about us is being accessed between governments and companies and how you know what we know is being manipulated through censorship and takedown requests you know if we don't have transparency and accountability on that free speech is is not going to be real 
And, you know, even when it comes to censorship, you have countries, democratic countries that pass laws, you know, say, you know, in Europe, you have several countries where sort of pro-Nazi speech is illegal online. And you have some countries that have very strong libel laws or defamation laws. And so there are legally binding processes that people go through to get content taken down that the companies kind of have to comply with in order to be in compliance with the law. But, you know, how do you make sure that it's not being over complied with, that there aren't extra legal requests and you know, how many requests are being made? And so that's why it's really important to keep that transparent. And so that people can also get a sense of, you know, are there some countries where there's a lot more stuff being taken down than in other countries? And then people can start asking, why is that? So that's really important. And I'm also involved with a project called the Global Network Initiative, which is bringing together companies and NGOs, human rights groups, socially responsible investors, and academics to try and work on sort of basically we have a, a set of core standards on free expression and privacy that any company that joins the initiative has to sign on to these core standards and then we work with these companies to figure out how to actually implement these standards and principles in their operations. So how do you concretely in a world where there's no country where governments aren't pressuring companies to do things that some citizens find objectionable. In that kind of world, how, do, how does a company go about doing everything they can to protect free expression, to protect privacy of their users? And so not only do we ask the companies to make commitments, but they actually go through an audit of independent evaluators who assess whether they are actually doing anything they, they promised. So, so again, it's, it's not sort of a big data project, but at the same time, it's another effort to try and hold companies accountable for how they're managing their relationship with governments. Aside from the advocacy, the activism, the advice, the learning that you're doing as well, you've also recently brought out a book. Yeah, so my book is called Consent of the Network, The Worldwide Struggle for Internet Freedom, and it's really informed by all the work I've been doing since basically 2004 when I started working on sort of citizen media and internet issues. And it's really meant to be an overview of exactly this point, which is that you can't count on the internet remaining free. You can't count on the internet remaining compatible with democracy. And if we want the Internet to remain compatible with the political values that we hold dear, that we continue to fight for in democratic societies and that people all around the world are, in some cases, dying for, we have to work for it. Just as, you know, if, if you want the U.K. to remain a democracy and not slide into something else, or if we want the United States to remain a democracy or, or anything, you know, you have to work at it. Your rights are not going to be protected if you just kind of stay at home and watch telly all the time. If you're not engaged as a citizen in society, don't be surprised that those who feel like shaping society to their own liking will go and do so. And it's the same with the Internet. Companies and governments are working very hard to shape the Internet to their advantage. And we as citizens need to work equally hard to shape the Internet to our advantage if we want it to benefit us. How easy or difficult is it to influence a wider group of people to take action, to take an interest? Because 
Companies online often make products that make things very easy, very comfortable. It's quite easy to sort of slip into a way of using products without even questioning where your information goes or if your updates are useful to governments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of these technologies are very new and seem very magical to people and kind of automatic. But awareness building, in my book, I equate it to the environmental movement. You know, 50 years ago, people didn't think much about how their own actions affected the environment. Companies didn't care how their production system affected the environment. Governments didn't have much in the way of environmental regulation because they just wanted to collect the tax from the companies which were contributing to economic development. And so how did you ever get companies to change their practices and become more sustainable? And how do we ever get governments to institute environmental standards and regulations. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than it was 50 years ago, right? This is because we've had a long sustained movement, raising awareness at all kinds of levels, from the consumer level to the investor level to the sort of person on the street, schools, neighborhoods, a deep and broad global movement that has come about, and also educating the media you know, and getting reporters to understand why they had to cover these issues. Fifty years ago, newspapers weren't covering the environment. There were not people really studying the environment as an academic discipline, you know. And that has all come about recently because people made an effort and decided they had to care and they had to educate themselves. And so I think with the Internet, and if we're thinking about the Internet as how do we sustain it for democracy, similarly, we, we need to build a a global movement. It's it's a lot of education over a sustained period of time at all kinds of different levels of society. And it takes time. It takes time to build awareness. But I think we're already seeing just, you know, I finished my book a year ago. It didn't come out until January because that's how publishing is. But just in, in the period between when I finished the book and when the book came out in February, we've seen a huge growth in this movement. And since February until now, I think it's grown even more. So I'm hopeful that more awareness will build and that people will start thinking more actively about how technology is shaping their lives and that it doesn't have to be any particular way. That's the result of decisions, and you can push back. know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline/lingua. Global Voices would be nothing without its current creators too. So to round up our coverage of the summit for the podcast, here's some closing thoughts and experiences from our authors, translators and editors who create this extraordinary source of news and information. Hi, my name is Diana. I come from Moldova and I'm an author for Global Voices. It's my first time uh, being part of the Global Voices Summit. I believe it's really important to give the chance for 
people from underrepresented communities to bring the voice of local communities to the attention of international audience, uh, experts from social media as well as from academics and to understand how social media can play a bigger role in uh, giving a voice to the ones that still do not have a voice on the, on, uh, on the global level. I'm Rafael Tsavko from Brazil, Lingua Portuguese, and uh, I've been with Global Voices for more than three years now. It's my second summit, and uh, it's a great place to meet people and to meet again, people that you already met in the summit, previous summit, and well, to learn new techniques, how to blog, how to use the internet, and also to teach uh, the newcomers how to use all the social tools we've learned so far. And well, it's a learning space and also a social space to get together with people from different backgrounds, different cultures and histories. I'm Elaine Diaz, I'm from Cuba and I'm living in La Habana, Cuba. I'm working in Global Voices as an author since 2010. When I came here, I said, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to meet all these people from all these countries. I mean, being in a place with so many people who are from so many countries is something amazing because we receive a lot of people in Cuba, but it's not the same. People here have sisters and brothers. Everybody loves you. Everybody wants to hear what you have to say. And I have never been in a place like that before. And this is amazing. I think the, the other thing is that I've never realized that Cuba could be represented in a summit like that. And I was so proud of this. <laughs> That's all we have for this edition of the podcast. Thank you to all of our contributors, the event organisers, and to you for downloading. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices Stories on Facebook, too.